welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show. Welcome aboard. Hope you're enjoying Counterpunch. Hope, you ha- hope you've had a chance to explore Counterpunch Plus, the new subscriber section from Counterpunch. This is a great new feature that we're offering to our subscribers. Not only are you going to get exclusive content in the form of articles and uh, book reviews and essays and other things like that, but you also get, and this is a feature I didn't talk up last time, you also get the archive of all of Counterpunch's print issues going back more than 25 years. There's a wealth of information there. You can go back and read Alex Coburn's old columns, Jeff Sinclair's old stuff, all of the different contributors to Counterpunch over the years. That's a great, great feature and actually one that you don't get in a lot of publications. And a lot of publications don't have a quarter century history behind them. So if you like Counterpunch, if you like the content in the past, in the present, and hopefully in the future, please do become a subscriber. Uh, Counterpunch Plus subscription is an excellent way to support Counterpunch. Keep the lights on. Keep this podcast going. You can also uh, support the podcast by getting a t-shirt. Counterpunch Radio t-shirts are available. And this is the moment that I'm going to make my huge pitch for the fun drive. We are doing our fun drive at Counterpunch, trying to make sure that all the bills can get paid and we can continue to bring all of this wonderful content to you. So if you want to support Counterpunch, now is the time to do it. Uh, I'm trying to use my best telethon voice to say that. Please do get over to the website. Do make a donation. It is so greatly appreciated. You can also find more work from me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. Lots more podcasts, articles, essays, poetry, all kinds of stuff that I do there. So uh, consider that as well. All right. Enough of all of that. Let me get my guest on here. Tony DiMaggio is with me. Tony is back on the show. He's actually one of the lost Counterpunch episodes. Maybe we'll find the one that we never were able to publish, Tony. But Tony's back. Tony is an associate professor of political science over at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. He is the author of many, many books. Frankly, he's the author of too many books. He publishes more books than I could keep track of. But most recently, Rebellion in America, excellent book in 2020. His 2019 book, Political Power in America, also a must-read, especially for those of you with uh, college-age students, people that you want to educate on these issues. And he has another book to that effect, brand new, Unequal America, Class Conflict, the News Media, and Ideology in an Era of Record Inequality. Brand new book coming out next year, early next year, I believe. Tony DiMaggio, welcome back to Counterpunch. Thanks for having me. And maybe I should uh, stick with something else besides the In America theme. That's three books in a row. Maybe it's time to move on. <laughs> maybe you're challenging Gore Vidal for an America trilogy type series. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's good. No, it's excellent. It's it's a really important work. We're going to talk, I think, a little bit about the book a little bit later in our conversation because what I wanted to highlight with you now, Tony, is your most recent piece for Counterpunch. This was published uh, while we're recording on uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, formerly known as Columbus Day, October 12th. Uh, Your piece came out this past weekend. The headline, The Case Against Social Media, Mass Misinformation in the COVID-19 Era. So there's a lot in that piece. So let's start at a very basic level. You were looking at a bunch of data from your uh, political science, sociological uh, perspective. What were you looking at? What was the methodology that you did to carry out this analysis? And what are the basic findings? 
So to put this as simple as possible, the what I was I looking at part, there's this idea that I'm promoting here that misinformation in and of itself has become its own epidemic, not just COVID as an epidemic, but like this crisis of um, propaganda, misinformation, massive public confusion. And so, you know, this is, uh, this is a thing now, especially with, um, you know, the two main issues that I'm talking about in the piece, which one of them is conspiracy theories, specifically the Pizzagate QAnon thing. And the other one is various coronavirus myths and uh, conspiracies too. You know, um, it's, you can, when you talk about coronavirus myths, conspiracies, there's so many that it's it's almost hard to count them at this point, right? It's like almost an infinite number of permutations of, of myths that have been disseminated in conspiracies. So, you know, what I'm looking at here, it's interesting. There's some data that's finally come out on this about what is the relationship between like um, traditional news media consumption versus social media and as related to the likelihood that people would hold all types of um, false beliefs, misinformation, right? And so that's sort of generally what I'm trying to do here. And then I'm, of course, happy to sort of talk about that in greater detail too. Yeah, let's talk about it a little bit. I mean, you were looking at a particular stu uh, Pew study from, I believe it was April of 2020. There's a lot that comes out of that that you then kind of use in your analysis. So talk a little bit about what that, uh, what that poll found and what you found as you went through the analysis. So uh, there was a couple of polls, April and June, for Pew with regards to coronavirus and sort of looking at how misinformation has um, been measured in a couple different points in time this year. And then there was some other Pew polling data about QAnon this year. And so, you know, depending on which one we get into, I guess if we started with uh, the QAnon stuff first, you know, this really started with Pizzagate as a really sort of bird-brained, really bizarre out there, really wild conspiracy uh, speculation that it really had no foundation in fact. And for people who aren't that familiar with this, because some people I talk to, they, they still aren't. Um, you know, there's this idea that the Democratic Party was running some sort of really expansive, secret sex trafficking pedophile ring. And it's not just um, pedophilia. It's that well, they're also cannibals and they're also satanic and they're also in league with the media and other powerful actors. And think of the children. That's the tagline that ends up coming along with this conspiracy. So with Pizzagate, you know, this goes back to like 2016. There are all these rumors going around on social media sites, Reddit and elsewhere, where they become convinced that there was a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. I think it was called Comet Ping Pong, uh, where they were. this was supposedly going on. Hillary Clinton was like coordinating with people to run this pedophilia ring. And so uh, one of these conspiracy theorists basically went in there and shot it up looking for their basement, which didn't exist, which he had become convinced was where they were doing the sex trafficking. And so basically Pizzagate ends up sort of evolving, or you could say maybe devolving would be more fair, uh, into QAnon, which is this larger sprawling conspiracy about how the deep state is out to get Donald Trump and he's out to beat the Democratic pedophiles and so on and so on. So, you know, Pizzagate morphs into QAnon. Well, why is this important? Because like half of Americans say they've heard about or read about QAnon now, so it's not any longer some sort of fringe conspiracy. It is still a fringe conspiracy, but now it's sort of got mass exposure. And um, what does that mean? Like, if you would have looked at it just a couple months ago, maybe to a year ago, you know, the vast majority of Americans hadn't heard anything about it. Um, now, something like a quarter of Americans say that QAnon is good for the country. 
uh, 75%, around 75% say it's bad for the country, but a quarter say it's good. And if you look at what's really seemingly driving this, it seems to be two things. Number one is uh, social media exposure. And, you know, the big forums that QAnon has sort of taken over are like, uh, I would say, YouTube and Reddit. If you look at some of the polling data where most people are getting this stuff from, particularly Reddit uh, and also Republicans. So 56 percent of Republicans say that they believe QAnon conspiracy is either partly or mostly true. And so this is a really big deal that you have uh, this sort of conspiratorial quackery sort of um, really outlandish thinking that's now being mainstreamed in the Republican Party. And this is sort of a long time coming because this isn't the first time that people have been taken for a ride by outlandish conspiracies. You know, we could be talking about death panels, could be talking about birtherism, then it's Pizzagate and QAnon, and then it's like all types of outlandish uh, COVID-related myths and conspiracies. And that's the other big thing that I'm looking at with these Pew surveys. Like apparently half of Americans have been exposed to this conspiracy that 5G caused coronavirus. About a little more than half believe um, myths like vitamin C can be used to defeat coronavirus. Almost 40% of Americans say that they think home remedies can be an effective way of defeating coronavirus for extreme cases. Um, 36% say that they believe, quote, powerful people, unquote, planned coronavirus. This is now getting into the territory of the like um, pandemic. I don't even want to call it a documentary, but just sort of propaganda short clip. Um, 15% of Americans say they've watched that thing, either all or, or partly. Um, and about 37% of Americans say that they believe now that the death statistics for COVID have been uh, exaggerated, that they're they're really lower than, than what we're hearing. Uh, and of that 37%, almost 60% of those people say that the numbers have been intentionally exaggerated. Uh, so what is that actually, as a percentage of Americans, that's about one in five. One in five Americans think that coronavirus... Uh, either, you know, well, in this case, they're saying that it's just not real. And then you've got this other conspiracy saying it is real, but it was planned. So you can sort of pick your poison here. You know, there's all types of misinformation. And I haven't even got into half of these conspiracies and myths. There's so many more, too. And so this is really, um, it's really disturbing because, you know, we've always had conspiracy theories and, and paranoia in America, but we seem to be in the middle of a new sort of extreme wave of this because this stuff does come in waves. There's so many things that I want to say uh, in response to your piece. So let me talk about a couple. Um, one has to do, and I'm going to read a quote here from your article, and I'm going to push back against it a bit, but I think you'll understand where I'm getting with this, where I'm going with this. You wrote in your piece, quote, the best conspiracy theories are those that are completely unencumbered by facts or evidence. So there's a lot of truth to that, of course, because the the being untethered from facts and evidence allows for the creation of these overarching sort of meta narratives, as we talked about, as you were mentioning with QAnon and others as well. But it does seem that we should probably keep in mind that these conspiracy theories are effective and the most effective ones that go viral precisely because they are rooted in some element of truth, some 
element of evidence that backs this up. So, for example, with QAnon, right, the overarching meta conspiracy that there is a cabal of uh, child sacrificing, Satan worshiping, adrenochrome drinking Democrats and Hollywood uh, celebrities and various other powerful people, right? Of course, an insane and preposterous conspiracy theory. But rooted in it is the very real and very scary things like Epstein and very powerful people with a history of sexual predation and the very sort of degenerate ruling class that exists in the United States and the various ways that that manifests itself. And so what we find then is that the conspiracy the, the conspiracy theories that seem to be most effective are precisely the ones that play off of, exaggerate, and then twist for their own purposes those very real and very scary aspects of our ruling class. I think so. I think that makes sense. Um, so maybe, you know, I was sort of thinking about that in hindsight when I wrote that, because I think we could make a distinction between um, the different parts of the conspiracy. So, you know, if you're like a really good propagandist and a really good conspiracy person, it helps to have a really wild imagination that's not encumbered by anything. But if we're talking about the receiver, right, you know, these things can catch on because there are these uh, fragments of or grains of truth, I guess you could say. And of course, you know, as you mentioned, you have Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein and, and a number of the people who were affiliated with him who were engaged in sex trafficking of underage, of underage uh, girls. So, yeah, you know, I think that's a part of the equation that you have uh, people who see these stories and at some point, you know, they, they know that these things are real. So they're already sort of susceptible. But then with the conspiracy, it just sort of goes hog wild, really. And it gets, you know, to epic levels of insanity. Well, and it's and it says something about class too, doesn't it? Because it's it's very much rooted in this idea that the, that these type of um, acts are being carried out by you know the elite, right? The ruling class, the members of the ruling class that are so far removed from the down to earth, good old fashioned, you know, good old boys down the street or what 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 have you, right? So there is a class dimension to this as well, and that becomes ever more stark when you consider the fact that these people lined up behind a billion you know, who is also a sexual predator of the worst kind. But there is a class character to this, isn't there? Something something populist, something anti-elitist, which is in some fundamental way uh, in the very DNA of the United States going back a century and a half at least. I think so. I think, um, you know, when you look at a lot of these different conspiracies. I think that if you're talking about the American left, there's a subsegment of the American left and right that fall into these conspiracies. So the classism part is most definitely playing into this if you're talking about particularly on the American left. Um, I would give like another example of this maybe. You know, I think if you're looking at the um, Donald Trump Russiagate stuff. Now, I'm not somebody who is going to sit here and say that there was nothing to uh, some of the allegations that were made, because we do know some things in terms of like Paul, Mor Paul Manafort's connections with the Russian government, um, Donald Trump, his son, um, the, the Trump Tower meeting. We know that like, you know, this is not outlandish that Donald Trump tried to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. I don't think that should surprise anyone. But if you look at some of the more outlandish sort of speculation regarding Russiagate, like a lot of the stuff you would see on MSNBC, right, and among sort of liberal pundits, there's a lot of wild speculation, right, about like, 
not just a, an attempted sort of connection there between Trump and, and Russian oligarchs and, the, and Putin and, and surrogates of Putin, but this notion that like, you know, there was electoral manipulation and the manipulation destroyed the fabric of democracy as if we have a real democracy to destroy at this point. <laughs> but, um, you know, there was, there was all types of wild speculation. And I think it was easy for a lot of people on the liberal left to, to maybe buy into this stuff because you look at the person who was being, um, there was being alleged against, right? Donald Trump, right? This billionaire sort of plutocrat. And he plays, you know, that sort of conspiratorial mindset, you know, he would be another example of that, this distrust of elites. And so I think that that's probably in the background for a lot of these conspiracies that the people on the left uh, may be more susceptible to this because of the target, right? Whether it's a Donald Trump or other kinds of uh, political elites that the, the people on the progressive left, the, the far left, uh, the radical left, you know, that these things get marketed in different ways to different groups of people. So I think that plays into it on the left. And on the right as well. And I mean, I'm thinking specifically of the long and uh, very interesting and, and bizarre history of uh, conspiracy theorizing and secret societies in the United States. I mean, going back to the Freemason conspiracies, the anti-Catholic uh, sort of conspiracy mongering of the 19th century and so forth, you have a long history in the United States of this idea that a cabal of some, you know, other quote unquote other that is attempting to undermine and destroy what is the real and authentic America. And obviously Donald Trump is the latest manifestation of that. And all of these various conspiracy theories that swirl around him from QAnon and others kind of play into that. I think so. You know, the, the Jesuit conspiracies are talking about, uh, the anti-Semitism, the Freemason stuff, um, McCarthyism, right? You know, like this is not, this stuff isn't new. Um, you know, you can go back to look at the works of, um, uh, prominent historians like Richard Hofstetter, right? And he talks about anti-intellectualism in American life going back to the 50s and 60s. He's writing about this stuff and um, the paranoid style in American politics, right? And, you know, uh, Hofstetter points out too that it's not just the American right, it's also the left too, although it's particularly powerful on the right. So, you know, that's one thing that I think sometimes people lose some perspective here when they just look at sort of what's happening with modern politics. They say, we've got an epidemic of fake news, and uh, conspiracies and anti-intellectualism, but these are all old problems. And so I think it's probably much more accurate to say that these things come in waves and we are sort of in the middle of another extreme wave right now. You know, the 1950s was another one of those waves. No doubt, but of course it seems punctuated by an economic desperation that was certainly not there in the 1950s and the 1960s when the United States was economically prosperous. Now, as we approach what I suppose we could call the the last days of neoliberalism, or certainly it seems like that, the last days of the neoliberal period of the last 50 years, that somehow things are quite different and that the stakes, at least to me, seem to be significantly higher because the institutions that form the bedrock of the state in the United States are much more, uh, I would say, eroded and much more unstable than they were uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. And it is precisely those areas of erosion and instability of institutions where uh, room for conspiracy theorizing really comes in. And I mean, this is something that I, I was going to talk with you about a little bit later, that much of the conspiracy theorizing and the sort of the popularization of conspiracy theories, much of that is due to the erosion of trust in 
mainstream or what we would might call corporate media, the more distrust there is against uh, the media and what the media is telling you, the more room there is for this kind of conspiracy theorizing. And I'm one, of course, who very much distrusts the media and distrusts corporate media and corporate narratives. At the same time, we also see what happens when real and verifiable news gets supplanted by conspiracy theory. I think that makes sense. Um, part of what I'm doing in this research is I'm looking at people who consume traditional news media versus social media, and particularly to get information about QAnon and coronavirus. And sort of uh, the interesting finding here, related to your point about how people are gravitating away from corporate traditional news media towards social media, is you really see a big difference in the, the different groups whether someone is more likely to get their information from social media or traditional news media, because here's what we end up seeing. Uh, and I talk about this in the piece. People who are relying primarily on social media for their information, uh, they say this in the surveys. You can see it statistically. They're more likely to say that they struggle to know what's real when it comes to things like coronavirus. They're more likely to say they've been exposed to a variety of these different myths I talked about and conspiracies. They're more likely to accept the myths when asked about them and the conspiracies. Uh, and you don't see this really at all with the traditional news media um, consumers. So this is a sort of a weird thing for me to say, and it sounds really perverse and bizarre because I've basically spent the last 20 years railing against corporate media and talking about corporate media propaganda. So it's really, really, really strange to now be the person saying that, that these traditional news media are holding the line against myths and conspiracies. And I think that the only way to really reconcile that is to just recognize that we've seen such a massive, qualitative, rapid deterioration in discourse um, that now the traditional news media, by comparison, relative to social media, look positively professional. And that's not something that's um, meant to be like a pat on the back for corporate media, because I've been very critical of them extremely for years uh, for pushing propaganda. Um, but it's just a sign of how much worse things have gotten. So what we have now is we have, and this is a really important point, by the way, you know, we say, oh, the corporate media, I don't believe what they say. Well, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, these are also corporate media, right? They're just corporate media with a facade or a veneer of personal empowerment because people have the gatekeeper who's now been taken away, right? And people can post what they want and they feel empowered. Um, so I would really stress that point, you know, that it's still corporate media, but it's just this sort of veneer of empowerment. And what's that done when you take away a gatekeeper or a filter? So let's say you have like a nonpartisan fact-checking group or a professional journalist, right? When you take that away and anybody can post anything, there's minimal efforts to effectively regulate content, then it's sort of the wild west of media, right? Like anything goes at any time. And that's really where we're at at this point. Like you have these echo chambers in social media where maybe people just want to hear left views and your friends are all fellow lefties. You have people who are just hearing right wing stuff and, and you can do that because you can customize uh, what information you're getting access to by the algorithms that are at work. You know, they give you more of what you want. You can block people you don't like. You can unfriend them. You can unfollow them. And this is customized to each person to give them the illusion of empowerment. When in reality, what I'm arguing here and what I'm documenting is that, you know, we're becoming dumber as a nation because there's just so much misinformation. The floodgates have been opened and, um, you know, it's, it's all coming through at once. 
I want to ask you about truth and what it means to arrive at or to search for truth in the current media landscape. And, and really, I guess a better way of saying what I'm, what I'm trying to say is what is truth in an environment where the truth seemingly is unknowable? And that, to me, is one of the primary questions facing us in this sort of, you know, to use your, your, your phrase from a minute ago, the sort of Wild West that we are in in social media, is that, say, for instance, just to provide one example of a conspiracy theory that I looked at that I was interested in related to what we're talking about here, right? The, the, the one of the many variants of the coronavirus COVID conspiracies is that it is the product of some kind of a bioweapons program, either a Chinese bioweapon program or a U.S. bioweapons program. Then there's an additional layer of conspiracy that says that Bill Gates and, and Anthony Fauci are involved in creating this coronavirus weapon, et cetera, right? But when you look at that issue and when you look at that conspiracy theory, certain things become problematic. For one, being for people like me who have spent 20 years following U.S. imperialism and what the U.S. is doing all over the world, we know that overseas weapons labs exist. There was one recently documented in, in by the U.S. military in Georgia where they're performing all kinds of experiments on viruses and other things. This was a major issue at the NATO summit. So for me, one thing that I, and I want to get your comment on this, Tony, is that when you start digging into these questions in a, in a genuine way, start asking, well, gee, could it be a bioweapon? Let's look at what U.S. Uh, experiments, you know, experimental programs are. Where's the money going? Who's running these labs, et cetera. Then you start to get bombarded by all the conspiracy theory stuff, and it becomes impossible to pick through it all. And so then you end up just dropping it entirely, right? And so I find this happening more often in the last several years that the more you look into something, the more indecipherable it seems to become because of this sort of conspiracy ecosystem. Well, I mean, that makes sense. And it's complicated by the fact that some conspiracies end up being true, right? You know, we can point to plenty of historical examples where something was not openly admitted to by people in power. And then it came out later that they were lying, whether we're talking about Watergate or the Pentagon Papers and lying about the Vietnam War. We could be talking about the Iraq War and this whole idea of a war for oil, which has like, you know, half of a century or more, really more like now it's probably more like 80 years of declassified policy documents that openly admit that the U.S. is in the Middle East for oil. It's not a conspiracy anymore, um, but, you know, it was not admitted for a long time. You know, NSA spying, right? Uh, under the Bush administration, these are all conspiracies that then came out. But I think, you know, the important difference here is that, um, you know, when you talk about conspiracies, some end up being true and others end up being totally unsubstantiated. And so you have to be able to try and distinguish between something that is conspiratorial that ends up being true or having evidence for it and things that don't. And that's where we're really struggling as a country, I think, because, you know, you mentioned this question about what is truth. You know, as an academic, if you ask any academic, and I guess I'll speak for academics here, um, we feel very uncomfortable with this idea that we as individuals have the truth to give you, because the whole idea of the truth is something that we're supposed to be talking about and having a conversation about as professionals, as experts, and maybe 
just maybe we can come close to some sort of understanding of truth if we put our heads together and combine our evidence and our data and have a discussion and a debate. And maybe at the end of that, we'll come closer to some sort of better understanding of what's going on. But it's not something any one person can sort of give you. So, you know, what I think really needs to be happening here is that we need to find a way as a society for people to be able to have these conversations about what is true and what isn't, because academics don't have a monopoly on that at all. But we need to be able to do this in a way where people recognize the difference between an actual argument that has evidence versus wild speculation. And that's really the problem that people today don't know how to distinguish between a more or less legitimate informational source. They don't know the difference between the New York Times and Breitbart in terms of one doing actual reporting, however flawed it may be at times, and the other one just sort of stealing content from corporate media, right, and passing it off as news. People don't have uh, the information literacy to know what factcheck.org is or PolitiFact, and they don't even know that nonpartisan fact-checking groups exist. So I think that the real problem here is that we need to do a much infinitely better job as a society in promoting basic civic and informational literacy. And the only way that that's going to happen is if we prioritize this on every single level in society. You know, uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, colleges, and after, we need to have required engagements in sort of helping people develop basic informational literacy. Because then, you know, it's not going to be such a a challenge when you have academics and medical researchers and scientists who are trying to have these discussions about truth, and they're told by, you know, a quarter of the population, a third, 40%, that they're all liars uh, because people don't know what an, an adequate threshold of evidence even looks like. And they, they don't know how to look for that. They don't know what it looks like, and they don't have any commitment to it. So I think that's where we need to start here before we can talk about truth. There's something to be said for separating the real from the fake to the extent possible. And when we as a society, as you're mentioning, become unable to separate the real from the fake, one then wonders whether anything is real anymore, right? I remember in the uh, first days of the COVID pandemic, there were people uh, circulating videos on social media saying there was nobody in the hospitals. There are no patients dying of COVID. Look, here's video in the hospital in New York City. Here's video in a hospital in Chicago. All, everything looks normal. Nobody's, no, there's no COVID. It's not real. This is fake. This is a hoax, right? And then, of course, uh, as, as it became more and more apparent and all of the evidence began to stack up, that theory went away, right? But in that period, say in that two-week period, who's to say whether it was real or not? Millions of people saw those videos and millions of people went around saying it's fake. Well, you hit the nail on the head there because we live in a society today where you know, the information we get is so insanely and heavily mediated, right? So uh, if you're not seeing something in front of you, it can be very easy to get misinformed about a topic. Um, so that's always a problem. I guess you could say, fortunately... You know, one thing I've, I've noticed with my studies of public opinion is the longer people are exposed to an issue, like you said, the harder it becomes to misinform people. Probably the best examples of this um, from when I was sort of coming up in my youth, in my 20s, were the Iraq war and climate change, I guess you would say now. Because, you know, what's ended up happening is uh, what happened with the Iraq war was really quite interesting, like over years and years of 
reporting of this, people eventually sort of figured out that the, the reasons given for war weren't true. Uh, the casualties were going up dramatically. People could see in the news and they could talk to people who were coming back from Iraq who had served. They could hear from them. And I remember hearing this from at the time from people I knew, students who were coming back and friends. They were telling stories about what was happening. And so people were able to figure out over time through a combination of media and direct experience with people who'd been there, that they had been lied to about what was going on there and uh, what was happening. And I think with climate change, it's a really interesting example too, because what we've seen from some of the recent surveys, and you also get a sense of this when you just talk to people, people are starting to make a connection between extreme weather and climate change because they're experiencing these things. And this is not conspiratorial or kooky or out there. There's a whole sub-segment of climatology called attribution science, which makes an explicit link between a warming planet on the one hand and an increased likelihood of extreme weather events on the other. And so, you know, part of this is that people see the stuff in the news. They, they see in the news extreme weather events, droughts, floods, uh, extreme wildfires. And part of it, people say in these surveys that, you know, they're just experiencing it in their own communities. So I guess if there's a silver lining here to the misinformation is that people oftentimes do figure these things out, but it takes them a while. And just to finish up that point, as you were mentioning the example of the Iraq war, that's the primary one that certainly the uh, radicalizing moment for me, that's what set me on the course of my political development when I was in uh, undergrad during the beginning of the Iraq war and all the protests around that. And that is one of the seminal moments, I would say, of, of the last 20, 25 years with regard to the erosion of faith in mainstream media. I mean, that is probably the, the weapons of mass destruction is probably the single the single most important event i would say in the erosion of faith in the media which of course gives rise to both the uh, uh growth of the alternative media which i'm a part of and certainly i have been involved in since that time but also gives rise to a lot of the conspiratorial thinking here where you'll get the guy who's coming to give me an estimate on a new boiler telling me that everything on everything on the news is a lie Everything on the news is a lie. I'm like, uh, the weather too? We've entered the era, and this is another one of those perverse things that I didn't ever expect to happen because I was the person in the streets screaming in 2002 and 2003 in D.C., um, in Chicago, in central Illinois, where I was going to college about the Iraq war and how people needed to wake up and be critical and sort of start to figure these things out. We needed to dissent. And, you know, people had just sort of all suspended any notion of disbelief. You had this really rampant nationalism, right, for years. And we, what we've done in this country in the last really 10 years, it's really quite incredible because I didn't see this coming at all. And I don't think most other people did either. We went from a nation where almost nobody dissented to a nation where we have now what I would call faux dissent, right? You know, there's just such an insane amount of dissent. And some of it is extremely called for, right? If you're talking about Black Lives Matter protesters who are spotlighting police brutality, uh, murder, racial profiling, like these, I understand why people are protesting and I support it and I participate in it. Um, on the other hand, you've got faux dissent, right? You know, when someone looks at you and says, everything that anybody tells you is fake, especially if it doesn't conform with my politics, right? Anything that anybody links to on any news source that I don't agree with because it, you know, it sort of doesn't overlap with my prior attitudes. That's really a, a faux dissent. That's just sort of like people have gotten to the point where there's so much rhetoric 
of distrust that has taken over uh, that people aren't even able to sort of think about dissent in a coherent way. And, you know, the question then that comes up is where did that come from? I think that this is sort of a culmination of, of many, many, many years, particularly over the last 10 years of the Republican Party and conservatives sort of playing this faux dissent role. You know, you have people like Rush Limbaugh, who's been doing this particularly, he talks about the different corners of American deceit, which for him include the government, science, the media and journalists, um, academia. And it's gotten to the point where there's just like a complete knee-jerk rejection of everything that doesn't sort of overlap with people's prior beliefs. And that's been fueled by people on the reactionary right to the point where we've got faux dissent. So we've got to be careful because, you know, not all forms of dissent are equal. And, and many of them may be uh, themselves uh, cooked up by elites who are trying to manipulate you. Rush Limbaugh is a great example. I think faux dissent is a great point, a great uh, point for us to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to pick up right there, and we're going to talk about Tony's new book that we will be uh, exploring in depth here after the music. Enjoy. Stay your faithfully, not seeing it's the return of the slavery. 
we're back here on Counterpunch Radio chatting with Tony DiMaggio. Again, you got to uh, pick up the latest books, uh, the 2020 book, Rebellion in America. Rebellion is a key word I'm going to talk about here in a second. And the new book that I'd like to discuss right now, Unequal America, Class Conflict, the News Media, and Ideology in an Era of Record Inequality. That'll be coming out shortly. Um, but some of the issues, I think, are relevant to our discussion here today. So let's just talk really quickly about what you were mentioning before the break, Tony. You were talking about faux dissent, or maybe another way another way of describing the uh, dynamic as real versus fake rebellion, because it does seem that what we have now is a sort of uh, a fascist in the White House who is manages to inhabit the space of a uh, the rebel, right? Somehow he's the president of the United States and yet is against the system. The system is against him, right? This is the dynamic that we're talking about here. So real rebellion versus fake rebellion. And this is a dynamic that I think is interesting because Tony, you have done a lot of work on this subject, as have I, as have others, of Trump Trump's base and what Trump's base really represents, right? And you did quite a lot of work in Counterpunch and elsewhere uh, showing empirically that Trump's base really is petty bourgeois for the most part. It is not this elusive white working class, as has been mentioned many times before. And yet there is a narrative that Trump and Trumpism is somehow a rebellion against something, against neoliberalism, against political correctness, against progressive politics or what have you, right? Right. So can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, real rebellion versus fake rebellion, real dissent versus fake dissent, and how Trump really has weaponized fake rebellion? Sure. Uh, just to give some context here, um, I talk about this in both of my recent books, Rebellion in America and Unequal America. If people are interested in Rebellion in America, you can go to the bottom of any of my my articles, particularly my last one on uh, coronavirus and misinformation. There's actually a link to read it for free on the Rutledge, uh, Taylor and Francis website. Um, so, you know, that's just in terms of if, for people want to hear more about this and dive into it in more detail. But what I basically do in that book and in Unequal America, which is coming out, is I, I have what I would say is probably, to my knowledge at least, the most detailed sort of survey of all of the different data that's been collected. Uh, part of this data is my own, my own survey data that I've analyzed. And a lot of it's from other people too. And it's looking closely at not just what you talked about regarding Trumpism, like that's a big part of it. There's almost, there's virtually no evidence that Trump supporters are driven by economic insecurity. Um, what we actually see is the opposite. You know, when I talk about these things in rebellion in America and in unequal America, I talk a lot about social movements and what's actually driving them. And there is this economic connection. I think the real story that's been missed here is that economic insecurity has been associated first and foremost and primarily with left wing and progressive protesting in the last decade. So what I talk about in these two books is the Madison protests of 2011. Uh, the Fight for 15 Living Wage Movement. I talk about Occupy Wall Street quite a, quite a bit. I talk about protests in the COVID era, particularly um, among people who were supporting and advocating uh, the whole idea of a national sort of rent strike and rent moratorium. I talk about uh, anti-Trump protests against the repeal of, of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and sort of what I show in all of these cases is that, you know, case after case after case, you have people who are 
facing economic insecurity, uh, people who are poor, people who have all types of economic anxieties about, uh, you know, wh whatever it is, low wages, um, losing the ability to engage in collective bargaining, concern about school debt and loss of jobs, concern about losing health care. Um, the, the, these factors are systematically and consistently over and over and over associated with progressive left-wing democratic protest. And so I think that one of the real travesties coming out of 2016 and out of that election is that this got covered up because I always viewed, you know, whatever people think about Bernie Sanders, you could be a supporter of Bernie Sanders or not. I have a lot of problems with him uh, in addition to recognizing some of the important stuff that he did. So I'm not all of one mind on him at all. Um, but one of the interesting thing about Sanders is, you know, he didn't build any movements. He was sort of the inheritor of movements, right? So when people talked about 2016, there was this narrative that got created about how Donald Trump was the inheritor of uh, the economic insecurity of the working class. And really, that was never true. If that was true at all in the 2016 election, it was more appropriate to talk about Sanders as inheriting the language of these movements of social justice. Uh, even though he didn't really do much to build these movements, he certainly appealed to them and drew on them explicitly during that election and beforehand. Um, so I will I will just quickly toot our own horn over at Counterpunch because we did write about that at the time. My piece was December 2016. It was just a couple of weeks after Trump was elected. Trump, Donald Trump is the triumph of white identity politics. That was the title of my article. The, the argument was is exactly the argument that you're making here. It's exactly the argument that you made after your data showed this, that Donald Trump's election was a petty bourgeois affluent election. Donald Trump carried the vast majority of high income uh, counties, high income voting precincts, uh, whether that was uh, measured by median income, by average credit scores, or any number of other indicators. Donald Trump was a movement of wealth, a movement of wealth and power, not extreme wealth, not necessarily the billionaire class, but the petty bourgeois, the business owners, those who have always really the base of the Republican Party. So, Tony, I mean, the evidence really shows it. Trump's base is just the Republican base. Yeah, and maybe a statistic we could add to this. I'm pretty sure I mentioned it last time you interviewed me. Um, there's a really good piece in, on, in Slate, like right after um, the 2016 election. And what they showed is really quite fascinating that, um, you know, it wasn't so much that Donald Trump gained working class votes. It was that Democrats lost them after years of neoliberalism and free trade agreements. And so what the slate piece pointed out was that the Democratic Party from 2012 to 2016, moving from Obama to Hillary Clinton, um, they actually lost three times as many votes from working class areas in the Rust Belt as Democrats gained between 2012 and 2016, moving from Romney to Trump. So, you know, that's actually a really important difference. It's not that Republicans gained those votes. It's the Democrats lost them. So these people became demobilized. And then what was left over is this petty bourgeois group we're talking about who, you know, they always go and vote, right? It's, it's the same old story. But um, people really messed this up when they were talking about Donald Trump. So what's really sort of weird here is that in a way, indirectly, you know, uh, the, the anger of the working class did give us Trump, but not in the way people think it did. What it did was, you know, it was a sign of the failure of the Democratic Party more than the success of the Republican Party. I think that's exactly right. Absolutely right. Let's shift to unequal America and define some of the terms here for people. Um, this is not the first time I've asked this question on this show, and you're not the first expert I'm asking of this, but I think this is a question we have to always ask. 
as we talk about the era of neoliberalism and the impact of neoliberalism on our politics, on our economy, on our society, on our culture, we should probably just take a moment and ask, what in the hell is neoliberalism, Tony? It's a good question. You know, I don't think I've ever seen um, a sort of universal agreement on this among intellectuals, among academics, among just progressive activists. The way that I, I, I could say the way I use it, I mean, in a very general sense, the most general, I would say that neoliberalism is this idea that we have a society that exists for the power of the upper class and corporate corporations and business elites. And then that ends up manifesting itself in a lot of different individual ways. Um, but you're talking about corporate power and business power unleashed and the power of the upper class. Um, part of this is punitive. You know, you have the idea of racism and classism and entire dogmas and propagandas and belief systems that get created that glorify uh, white affluent Americans and demonize people of color and poor people of color and poor people in general. And this is a very important part of neoliberalism. And then it ends up uh, sort of um, snowball snowballing from there, right? You've got this idea that if people are unworthy, then we should punish them. We should be cutting welfare spending. People should be personally responsible. And that kind of rhetoric comes out of it. We should privatize public services because corporations could do a better job because they're the job creators and the engines of the economy. So there's this idea of the market society being unleashed. And I think that one really important point here with neoliberalism is that people mess this up sometimes. They say, oh, it's about free markets. Well, it has nothing to do with free markets. You know, um, that's the rhetoric, right? Oh, we should deregulate because every dollar a corporation can save is a dollar that they have to put in their pockets. But it's really not free markets because every time Wall Street and these major corporations get in trouble, the government rushes instantly to bail them out, right? So that's really class warfare. That's um, the government picking sides and supporting corporations and the wealthy when they need to get bailed out and then saying hands off once they've recovered from whatever economic crisis they're dealing with. And so that's very different. That's some sort of corporate socialism inverted socialism. It's not free markets. And we should be very clear about that with neoliberalism. Right. It's never really been about the, <clears throat> it's never really been about free markets. It's been about the free movement of capital in the interests of capital and in the interests of profit. Agreed. So one other point that you bring up uh, throughout the first part of the book, and I think it's also worth discussing here, is this idea of economic consciousness. Um, how we think about our economic life, our economic position, and the factors that go into that. So let's just talk at a very general level, and maybe we could drill down a little bit further. What is economic consciousness? How is it formed? And, and, and how does it develop? Talk us through that process, because you spend some time in the book doing that? So I'm using a much lower threshold uh, to assess Americans um, than, than what would be called class consciousness. The idea behind class consciousness, when sociologists talk about this, or even in a Marxian sense, people talk about the, not just the understanding that you're part of a class, which people will, would call that class in itself, but class for itself, which is that not only do you recognize that you're part of a class, but you also recognize that there are certain things you need to do to promote your interest as part of that class, right? So if people had class consciousness, they would understand what class they're a part of, whether you're talking about proletariat, 
bourgeoisie uh, or petty bourgeoisie or whatever. But they would also understand uh, how to sort of promote their interests. And we really, in our country, we have a real problem with this because Americans don't do well with class. Um, you know, most Americans, like 90%, say that there's some version of middle class because I guess they think it sounds good and it f feeds into a sort of myth of America where, where the classless society, the Horatio Alger stories of people pulling themselves out of poverty from rags to riches. Um, and so Americans don't do well with class. Um, that's a problem then, because if 90% of Americans think that they're middle class, then apparently we don't have rich people. And apparently we don't have really poor people. And that's really absurd. If you look closely at some of the statistics here, you know, the majority of millionaires say that they're middle class. And like two thirds of people who come from households that make less than 10 grand a year. I mean, you're objectively poor at that point. You qualify for every welfare benefit that exists. But two thirds of those people say that they're not lower class. So what I end up doing in this book is I recognize early on that this idea of talking about Americans as having a well-developed class consciousness, it's just not in the cards. So I have a lower threshold that I'm sort of dealing with here. I, when I talk about economic consciousness, it's a much simpler thing. My hope is that Americans uh, could at least deal with this on, on uh, sort of a uh, dichotomous level. And what I mean by that is that you either have a critical economic consciousness or you don't. And what that means specifically is that there's this question that's been asked by survey groups for decades now. Do you think America is divided between haves and have-nots? Or don't you think of America that way? Now, if, if you as an American can't even recognize that there is at the very least uh, this two-part distinction, you know, maybe you can't recognize the difference between three different classes or five gradations, but you should at least be able to recognize that there are people who don't have things. In a country where you know almost half of the population has zero financial wealth, if you can't recognize that, then we have a problem here because you don't even have a critical economic consciousness. So that's just um, some of the sort of details here in terms of terminology. And basically, what I'm doing in the book, in the introduction, and in later chapters, is I'm trying to play around with this idea of you know, who has a critical economic consciousness and who doesn't? And why is that the case that somebody develops that or they don't? So that's really what this book is about. One of the other critical aspects of the book is not just examining uh, economic consciousness and class consciousness, but in examining how inequality, economic consciousness or class consciousness is actually covered or not covered by the media, how the lack of coverage, the lack of uh, understanding of these concepts then translates into the political illiteracy that we see uh, in rampant in this country. So talk a little bit about some of your findings vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, media coverage of class and how that impacts public opinion. Sure. Um, well, to give you a little bit of a background for this before I even get into that, a little bit more than half of Americans historically, especially in recent years, have said we're not divided between haves and have-nots. So my argument is, before I even get into the media part, that Americans uh, have a heavily underdeveloped sense of critical economic consciousness. And so where does that come from? One of the things you mentioned is the media. Um so when you look at media coverage, one thing that I document in the book is that the U.S. media, they do talk a fair amount about things that are tangentially related to inequality. They talk uh, a fair amount about wages. They talk a lot about uh, tax policy, which has winners and losers within it. They talk a lot about jobs 
and unemployment and jobs reports, but this is not an adequate substitute for talking about class divisions or class conflict or inequality. That's, those are things that the U.S. media do a horrible job at. And I argue in the book that this is a function of a way of looking at the world where you have these corporations and the people who run them and who are a part of sustaining them that have a very elitist view of the world. And they don't like to look at the United States as a country that's fundamentally divided based on inequality and haves and have nots. And it's not that you won't find stories in the New York Times on inequality because they do exist. It's just that they don't appear very often relative to other kinds of coverage. As I mentioned, things like tax policy or jobs reports. Well, why does that stuff get covered? Well, because wealthy people benefit from corporate tax cuts and upper class tax cuts. And why do job reports matter? Well, because that's part of market metrics for how well an economy is functioning and how well corporations are functioning within that economy. So these kinds of things, you know, these hegemonic measures, that's an important thing to bring up, hegemonic, because, you know, I'm a Gramscian sort of at heart. So, um, you know, Antonio Gramsci talks a lot about false consciousness from a Marxian point of view, that you have um, these institutions in society like the media that stifle people's critical economic consciousness and their class consciousness. And so what's happening here is you have media outlets that are systematically neglecting and undercovering this issue of record inequality in America. And as a result of it, I show through a very careful data analysis um, that, you know, uh, the media are serving as this sort of primary institution that's suppressing class consciousness and economic awareness of inequality. So that's an important thing. You know, um, Gramsci had something to say about this, that the way people are socialized matters in terms of promoting a false consciousness. And so it's not just the media. You know, I talk a lot about uh, political parties and the way they socialize people, about the ideologies that people become attached to because of their peers and because of their parents and how they're socialized and how all of these factors related to socialization matter a lot to suppressing critical consciousness. I agree with that. And I also think it's critical for us to keep in mind that class and class consciousness is something that is not just misunderstood. It is actively suppressed. Uh, if you take any courses in economics or anything like that at the high school level or even at the college level, you will not encounter most of these concepts. You will not encounter talk of class for the most part with maybe very, very few exceptions. You'll learn all about, you know, profits and and uh, the basics of cl neoclassical economics and uh, curves and all of this kind of stuff. But the idea of class is rooted out to a large extent in the United States. It's not something I encountered really until after undergrad for the most part. So um, I guess I want to ask you, you talk, you've talked about the dumbing down of America and you did it in the context of social media, but at a more basic level, aren't Americans dumbed down by the simple fact that they are deliberately misled about the nature of class? I think so. And this is why I was trying to earlier distance myself from this notion that I'm creating an ideal vision of corporate media, right? <laughs> because here we are talking about this book that I just released, right? Which is specifically targeting corporate media, corporate mass media as dumbing people down, as keeping them uh, uninformed, misinformed. Um, and so, yeah, and, and you mentioned education too. You know, that's actually something I talk about in the book, that 
the educational institutions have not done a very good job of making people aware of inequality. So this is really a failure on many levels. And it's definitely a failure of um, educating people. But I guess you could say, in a sense, it's not a failure. It's a smashing success, you know, because if you have a certain viewpoint of the world, these corporations and the people that run them have as part of the top 1% of America and as part of this upper class, then the goal would be to suppress these things. That's so- exactly what I was going to say, Tony. <laughs> That's exactly the point I was going to say is that that is precisely right. It is in their interests to keep it this way. Yeah. And I think Gramsci would agree with us. You know, this is part of how you control people. Part of you get this common sense notion that we're all middle class. Um, and, and so what I think what gets really interesting here is that, you know, the, the later parts of the book are really trying to look at under what circumstances and under what conditions people might start to begin to question this stuff. Because at some point we have to have that discussion about how people are going to reject the hegemonic messages. If we're going to have any hope for democratic um, revolutionary type of changes, whether we're talking about the culture that we live in. And revolutionary change or the economic system or politics. We're going to have to leave it there, but the book is absolutely one that you're going to have to get. I believe, uh, is it available for pre-order now, Tony? Yes, it is. Okay, so it's available for pre-order now. I think it's supposed to be, uh, should be out in the first couple months of 2021, right, Tony? So it, it'll be released in December, and if you go to the Rutledge uh, website, yeah, they'll, they'll have it available there. Okay, so the book Unequal America, Class Conflict, the News Media, and Ideology in an Era of Record Inequality. That's the latest from Tony DiMaggio. You definitely want to pick that one up uh, in December, uh, maybe as a holiday gift for someone you know, someone who needs to read this. Of course, his other books, Rebellion in America, Political Power in America, uh, Anthony DiMaggio, Associate Professor of Political Science, Lehigh University, frequent contributor to Counterpunch. Always love to see his work there. Very, very happy to chat with him. Tony, thanks for all the great work. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Listeners, thank you as always. Thanks for supporting Counterpunch. We'll chat again next week.